0: Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions, and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. <laughs> Hello, I am here with a vocal health specialist who is also a vocal massage and laryngeal manual therapist. She runs her own treatment space called Valentine Voice Care and works with both the Voice Care Centre in London and Clyde Consulting Rooms in Glasgow, as well as working with clients from the English National Opera, the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland and Scottish Opera amongst others. Kate Valentine, welcome to the Singing Teachers Talk podcast. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. It's great to have you here. And I'd love to press rewind on your vocal career, if that's okay. And it saw you globetrot, didn't it, as an opera singer. So how were you first introduced to classical singing? And was it always this style for you?
1: No, it wasn't always classical music. Um, I sort of discovered classical music a bit by accident, to be honest. Um, I always loved singing. And I used to always sing with my mum. I really enjoyed making up songs, and it was just part of our sort of routine that we that we had together. And then, as I got older and went to school, i I really enjoyed being part of the school shows and, you know, playing a role on stage. And just it just always came very, very naturally to me. And um, I enjoyed the kind of dramatic element of it and just, used to throw myself in without really having any knowledge as to what I was doing. Um, the classical side of things came when I was at secondary school, so pretty late. Um, and up until that point, the only music lessons I really had consistently were just at secondary school as part of the, you know, in the music department. Um, I'd had a couple of um, singing lessons with a local teacher, um, as recommended by my general music teacher. Um, but i hadn't really studied very seriously it was just all on instinct at that point um and this music teacher at secondary school lent me a tape recording of kiri to kanoa i believe it was called essential kiri and i was just i was really fascinated by by the sound she was making i thought gosh that's that's really interesting so i started tentatively just trying to do a bit of imitating as i think you know it's the way a lot of a lot of singers start off and then i really became hooked when i was lent a video of carmen that was sort of set filmed kind of on set in seville um with Plácido domingo and um julia mingen i believe it was um and i was just completely gobsmacked i had never the the marriage of this technical style of singing that I was already fascinated by with that real high stakes drama just had me completely hooked and I watched the video um, without blinking I think and came downstairs that day and announced to my parents that I was going to be an opera singer and I think I would have been 15 or 16 at the time. Mm, That's amazing and you've you've traveled the world with it so where's been your Mm. favorite place to travel to to perform? Oh, I think one of one of the most special experiences I had um, was in Paris at the um, Châtelet, the Théâtre du Châtelet, in a production of A Little Night Music, Stephen wow. Sondheim's Little Night Music. Um, tragically, the the director for that, Lee Blakely, is no longer with us. Um, that whole experience was incredibly special. We had Leslie Caron. Um, was you know was this sort of the sort of elderly lady um, and we had uh, Greta Skaki, the actress Greta Skaki, um playing Desiree so there were a few real sort of celebrities in it and the money that had been spent on this production was just incredible so the costumes and the set everything was just was just magical like a, a fairy tale really and that along with being in Paris um, for that period of time, I believe, I think it was over Christmas time, it was winter anyway, so everything was sparkling and um, I had a couple of really close friends on that job too, so it, that that was a really, really special time. Mm, sounds amazing.
0: And you've spoken quite openly about your vocal health
1: and mm.
0: can you tell us a little bit about what you experienced?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's as these things often are, it's quite a long convoluted story, so you might have to bear with me, but I think... It's really worth talking about and going into a little bit more depth. I've always been very open and honest about my vocal health journey because I feel that that's really important. I feel that it's very important not to attach blame and stigma to these things because there is a wide range of things which can affect our voice Mm -hmm. on the sort of spectrum of vocal disorders. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on and on and very few of them are ever the singer's fault. Very few of them are ever related to some kind of technical thing or something that they did, inadverted commas, wrong. We coexist with our voice in our body. We cannot take it out and put it in a velvet box and look after it, if only we could. Mm. Um, and so from that point of view, we are really subject to everything else that our body is going through may also impact her voice and so my own story is a is a a classic example of this sort of mind-body biopsychosocial perfect storm Um, and it takes place over the timeline from the first um, voice change that I noticed to me having to have surgery on my vocal folds was two years so it spans quite a long period of time Mm. in between times Various little red flags, what I now know to be red flags, were reading their head. Um, But at the time, I wasn't aware what my body was trying to tell me. Um, And so was sort of doing what a lot of people think I do, I think do, which is just to push, push on and sort of hope it all goes away. And of course, it doesn't. The first voice change, vocal change I noticed um happened when I was singing Mimi for English National Opera, which was in June 2013. And this one was so subtle. It was just on one note, the E above middle C, and I just noticed that I had difficulty engaging with that note. I couldn't quite come from underneath it, I couldn't quite come from on top of it. I didn't know whether it was in chest voice or head voice or some kind of mix. It just didn't seem to want to sit in any space. Um, So I noticed that, but because everything else was largely fine, um, I didn't necessarily see that as a red flag in of itself. Um, In the autumn of that year, I was singing female chorus in The Rape of Lucretia for Glyndebourne on tour. And this inaccessibility that I'd experienced over one note whilst singing Mimi had now grown to a whole phrase and there was just one phrase at the very beginning of the opera that just constantly seemed to get away from me and it was in the middle of my voice Mm. um but i just could never quite feel grounded and again very subtle so probably people that were listening might not have noticed but to me i just i noticed that it felt different and that no matter what homework I did on it, that particular phrase never felt as if it was rehearsed the way that I wanted to. Um, so we fast forward now to um, the springtime of 2014, and I was singing Fiordaligi at English National Opera. Now, by this time, there were quite a few things that were going a, a bit awry with my voice. Um, I definitely noticed that I got vocally fatigued faster, mm-hmm. um, So, and my recovery time would take a bit longer. So if I'd had a day with lots of singing, I noticed that actually the following day, I wasn't really able to do very much at all. And sometimes it was creeping into the the next day into the sort of 48 hour bracket. Um, As well as that, I was starting to have difficulty sustaining pitch, particularly higher up in my range. Mm. So the note would sort of sag as I was trying to sustain it to keep that plate spinning. it It would just slightly start to sag. Um, My onsets were often very, very delayed Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, vocal fold swelling, any kind of vocal fold swelling often shows up when in, in really high, soft singing. And so they are often the things that start to get away from you quickly. And I definitely, by the time I was doing this production, was in that boat. I couldn't sing quietly. It was kind of all or nothing. And I remember right at the start of the production period, the director had us all as part of a sort of icebreaker um, walking around the room just gently singing a folk song to ourselves and I could hear everyone else doing it and I I couldn't because we were supposed to just be singing for ourselves so it was supposed to be quiet Mm. and not necessarily fully on the body and my vocal folds just would not approximate when I was trying to do that. Um, so I noticed that and definitely thought that is odd, but I thought I just was feeling particularly tired on that day. Um, and, and and definitely in terms of volume, at that point, everything felt like it had to be pretty strident all of the time, which mm. with Fjordeligion you can get away with a bit because of the character. But for instance, um, the trio, Suave Ciale Vento, um, I found, I mean, it's pretty evil anyway, let's face it, but I found that excruciating to get through. Um, and so I really started to lose confidence during this this production period because I could tell that things were getting away from me. Mm-hmm. Um, and now when I look back on that, I can see that I started to really withdraw from everyone um, because I didn't feel safe. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I stopped working with the vocal coach, um, that i that that was the main vocal coach at english national opera at that time because i just knew that when i came out of those sessions everything had just felt so hard and i you know now i realize that was because of something that was going on physiologically with me as opposed to what was happening in those sessions but i just i didn't know how to manage everything that was sort of unfolding around me Mm -hmm. um so i really started to withdraw from everyone um and the paranoia really set in at that time because, you know, you have a couple of bad auditions and you're aware that everyone's perception of you is slightly starting to shift. And then, so then you start to have a great deal of anxiety and stress around it, which of course makes everything else feel even harder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we're talking about this, this sort of biopsychosocial environment, you know, I've got at that stage, there most definitely was some kind of beginnings of the vocal injury that mm-hmm. I then ended up with, um, alongside a huge amount of anxiety and stress and worry about people's perception. Um, so that really sort of created the perfect breeding ground, I think, for vocally, for things to just get harder and harder. So that production of Cosi Fantuti was was really difficult for me. And I came away from it feeling pretty wounded and pretty paranoid. The next job I had was Majenka and the Barter Bride for Upper North. And that was an incredibly happy experience. And I think, again, because it wasn't Mozart, because it was a slightly different repertoire, I think I was able to sort of hide in amongst that music a bit better. So even though, there, of course, there were still vocal inconsistencies at that point, they weren't as glaringly obvious as they were when I was trying to sing the Mozart. Mm. So that experience was largely a very, very happy one. Um, And I sort of skipped away from that experience off to Denmark to sing another Fjordeligi with no break in between. So I arrived in Denmark and I was already pretty exhausted. And the production concept for this production of Cosi Fan was that it was a very novel idea. The audience got to vote during the course of the overture as to whether they wanted to see a traditional or modern production of kosi Fantute. Great gimmick, great. What it meant was that we had to rehearse two shows um, in the space of time that you would usually rehearse one. And we were double cast, but everybody was just exhausted, you know. Over winter, everyone was exhausted. I'd come straight off the back of um, the Barter Bride at Opera North, so hadn't had any rest time in between. And this is where things really kicked up a notch. So it went from one day I started to experience what sounded like me to a bit of static on my chords. And I asked my Guglielmo, who was standing singing with me, can you hear that? And he said, no, no, can't hear anything. Two weeks later, I had a hole in my voice of about five notes and diplophonia so that's when you you go to sing a note and almost two notes come out so i sounded like a little boy whose voice was breaking Mm. um which as you can imagine trying to sing (laughs) fjord isn't isn't the easiest thing in the world so by this point in time everything has started to accelerate so it was maybe a space of about a week or 10 days between me asking my colleague if he could hear the static in my voice to it being glaringly glaringly obvious to everyone in the room that there was something clearly wrong with my voice. At which point I um, went to see an ENT in Aarhus in Denmark and had an incredibly traumatic experience there. They used a nasendoscopy to look at my vocal folds with no kind of numbing spray. So the actual procedure itself was incredibly traumatic. Mm. And she then told me following that um, examination that I had A nodule, and that I should go away and rest. That I was going to miss my opening night, um, but that if I rested for the next week, maybe I might be okay for the next show. So you can, I mean, you can imagine. I mean, just the word nodule has so many negative connotations. Again, not fair in my opinion. Um, but I went home in a blind panic. How? What have I done? What? How how have I ended up with this? Is it going to go away? I'm going to be okay if I rest. Of course, I now know because of all the training I've done, there is no such thing as a nodule. Mm. <laughs> Nodules always occur bilaterally. So that wasn't actually even the correct diagnosis that she had given me. But, you know, I dutifully, I didn't know any any better then, I dutifully went away and kept Stoom for a week and travelled with the rest of the cast to the next venue. And the conductor very kindly, um, it was a very supportive cast and conductor, actually, I should say, very kindly had said to me, look, you don't need to do the stage and orchestra, just, you know, because we know you've been resting, just, just warm up for yourself and see how everything is. Oh, and the trepidation when I went into that theatre, honestly, having been a good girl and done everything she told me so i started gently in the middle of my voice started trying to just gently stretch it in either direction and it became very clear within minutes that it, it it wasn't there that it wasn't it wasn't going to be possible and i was absolutely devastated mm. devastated because by this point i knew there really was something wrong and that i had to go and get it seen to Um, Luckily, this time I was referred to um, an incredible laryngologist called Bo Hunica, who's based in Copenhagen. And he was so kind and uh, caring and really took his time and explained everything to me. And what I actually had was a hemorrhagic polyp, um, which had clearly been there for some time. Um, hence all of the, the vocal symptoms I'd had over the previous 18 months. So I'd essentially been limping along, singing principal roles at a really high level with with a vocal fold pathology. So it's sort of like the equivalent of trying to dance Swan Lake with a plaster cast on your leg. You know, no wonder I was struggling. So he said to me there, you know, you need to go home and rest. But to be honest, I think this probably is going to need surgical intervention and some form of rehabilitation um and it was just it was such an incredibly dark time anyone who's had any kind of voice issue knows just how intrinsically linked to our identity our voices are and i was in a in a foreign country by myself i'm actually that's not strictly true i had my beautiful cocker spaniel with me who just literally kept me going for that week I was in a foreign country, um, away from my husband, stuck in a town in the middle of nowhere in Denmark. I, I was sort of tra- I had to wait until they'd finished that part of the tour before we all went back to Aarhus before I could make my way home, and spent a very dark week shut in a hotel room, sort of hiding from the world and just just terrified, just absolutely terrified. At that point, the identity crisis for me was the biggest issue. Um, years earlier, I had been diagnosed with um, early premature ovarian insufficiency, they call it now, but essentially, I went through the menopause very, very young. Um, And my body went through huge changes at that time. I I really wasn't well. And it took a great deal of time to get the HRT levels correct um, so that I could have a quality of life and look after my bones and all of that. But we never thought to look at my vocal folds during that whole time, which now just seems so obvious, um, but nobody ever thought about it. And so if I had looked at my vocal folds at that time, I would have seen that actually there had been damage caused because I'd had no oestrogen in my body for um, at least 18 months. So I'd been singing on swollen oedematous folds the whole time. So what that meant was that I had lots of neovascularization up and down the folds um so the reason I got away with it for as long as I did was because the mucosal membrane was still was intact there were there were no bumps on that um all of the all of the blood vessels were sort of in between the strands of the cores but what it did mean was that I was really susceptible to injury mm-hmm. and if I'd if I'd had that information then perhaps my own spidey senses would have been a bit more attuned and I certainly would have acted faster when I noticed those red flags Mm
0: -hmm. you mentioned that you you spoke to one of your castmates and said can you hear the static and you said that your cast was really warm and and supportive was there anybody along the way who did pick up on anything and mentioned anything to you or was there any comment that actually made it worse um, along the way at all
1: i think no i mean with the benefit of hindsight now i see that there were some people that that possibly tried to pick up on things earlier on but without necessarily knowing how to articulate what they were hearing themselves um because i'd gone through the the menopause it was suggested to me certainly by at least one or two singing teachers that you know maybe that might have caused a bit of a bit of change in my voice but it was never flagged in such a way as and actually, this is the type of change it could have caused. And really, you should go and have your vocal folds looked at. Mm. Um, so there was just sort of lots of skirting around the issue. Um, and I think at the time I was so in denial because I'd been through such a huge trauma already with the menopause diagnosis that I really, I really threw everything that I had into my singing identity. And so I didn't, I didn't want to hear that there was anything wrong with my voice. That was the thing that I had. I realize now that perhaps there were well-meaning people along the way who, without having such a good grounding in vocal health, heard something and maybe tried to sort of articulate it in in a way that they knew how, but it wasn't wasn't obvious enough for any of us to take action. Mm. Um, And I wish we had, because now, knowing what I know now, my journey didn't need to be nearly as prolonged and nearly as traumatic. And I think you know now the work the work that I do now is all about education, all about encouraging singers to get to know themselves and their bodies and their instruments, so that this, the minute something does change, you can you can zone in on it immediately and take action. Because what is far more damaging, which is what happened to me, is just to power through regardless as all of these red flags are sort of creeping in.
0: What would be your advice to?
1: singing teachers
0: and vocal coaches, in order for them to articulate to their singers that they may need to see an ENT? Because it can be quite daunting to know that we hear
1: something and that it might cause some upset. It's really tricky for teachers, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. I think the main point is that no matter what we think we hear we you can never definitively know what's going on until someone has a stroboscopy and their vocal folds are looked at um functioning in situ um up until that point anything that we can see is is really just is really just guesswork and you're right we have to be incredibly um incredibly mindful of of the language that we use because you know, the, the nocebic effect of of saying to someone, oh, you say mm, you send it as if you bit you might have nodules, is just, you know, you can cause months, years worth of trauma just by using using that word. Um so I think it's you know recognizing that there are always things that are out with our scope of practice. Keeping notes, I think it's very, very important for teachers to to keep really fastidious notes about all of their their students, and if you start to notice voice changes, write them down. Mm-hmm. The current NHS advice is that any persistent, recent voice changes. So, I'm not talking about you know a bit of hoarseness because your student's been out the night before, and uh, you know, and there's a bit of delayed onset or a bit of hoarseness because they've been shouting in a pub all night. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about those niggling, persistent changes that have appeared and that are lasting sort of two to three weeks the current nhs advice is changes that last longer than three weeks should be referred on because they might indicate that there's some kind of underlying cause Mm -hmm. um so the best way that you can make sure that you're keeping track of it is really to write all of those down Mm -hmm. every single change that you notice every time scale write down things like vocal recovery Mm -hmm. how long how long is their vocal recovery time you know if they've had a a show the night before and they come to you for a lesson the next day are they able to vocalize are they not able to vocalize at all you know all of these things can be really really telling um so i think consistent documentation is definitely the first the first thing that i would say. Mm um and also because it really truly allows you to see if there if there if there is regression Mm. you can sort of see it unfolding in front of you in notational form Um, and also then that means that you've got something written down to then try to articulate to them now you will still have to go away and think about exactly how you're going to bring it Mm. up Um, but at least then you've got the evidence to bring to them rather than just saying oh something sounds a bit dodgy I think we better get you scoped because that is obviously gonna send them into a complete tailspin and also the other good thing about keeping notes is that they can then take those notes to the, the laryngologist.
0: Mm. You know,
1: so it helps, it really helps the laryngologist to see a timeline of everything, everything that's been going on. Um so I think just be really clear in your mind about what you have heard, what you've noticed. Um and and just be be kind and try to avoid this nocebic or diagnosing language. You might want to say something like Gosh, you know, I'm noticing today that it seems to be taking a little bit longer than usual for your voice to get to its happy place. I wonder, you know, do you have any any thoughts as to why that might be the case? Is there anything else that you've noticed about your voice so that you're you're putting it back onto them and allowing self reflection from their point of view? Um, because then if they feel safe enough to offer something up to you, it's much easier for you to then say. You know actually from this conversation that we're having i'm wondering just from a peace of mind point of view whether we should maybe look into having your vocal folds looked at is is that something that you might be open to mm-hmm. so you're not ever putting something on them you're not diagnosing them you're not using terrifying language mm-hmm. but you're just bringing their own awareness into the room Mm -hmm. Um, because you know they might be in denial, like I was. And actually, if somebody had taken the time to say to me, "I'm, I'm noticing this. How do you, how do you feel about that? How do you feel that that part of your voice is behaving?" I probably wouldn't have enjoyed being taken to that self reflective place. But if I had been, I would probably have been able to provide a whole page, a four page, of what was going wrong with my voice, Mm -hmm. which then might have prompted me to go and get it looked at. Mm. So I think, you know, be kind always, mm. be mindful of the the language that you use always and be fastidious in your documentation of what's going on.
0: Mm. Something I found quite useful, and I know this is probably only useful for those who have a video of a scope that they might have, but I had a scope when I first started teaching because I started to get really quite neurotic about my own voice. Um, learning so much about it I was like oh my (laughs) and got quite (laughs) panicked about it Um, I like to show students that video regardless of whether there's like a change so that it opens up a look how cool this is this is Mm. this is what your chords look like in in motion so that if we do ever have to go there they have a basis of oh I've seen that before my teachers had that we kind of are on a level playing field, and I found that to be quite useful. And um, I've even had students in in the moment of having a look say, "Oh, I'd love to see my vocal cords. How much is it?" And actually, it kind of takes Boom. away a bit of stigma of having mm. to go and have
1: that scope done. I think that's a genius idea. Actually, I think that's so so helpful. I often I often show um, people pictures of um, vocal folds in general. Um, mm-hmm and also you know anatomical pictures um it's incredibly helpful i think for i think there's so much about singing that is just a bit mystical you know um and the way that we've taught in the past hasn't helped that because you know there was an awful lot of use the force techniques in the past and i think we're getting better articulating um anatomically what is happening now because of you know because voice science has has moved forward so much in the last in the last few years um but i think anything we can do to just normalize all of this and say actually look this is what it looks like isn't that cool um because the minute that you start to see it as just muscle and tissue like everything else then it's much easier to understand how easy it is for there to be inflammation or problems you know if, if a footballer f- falls over and sprains their ankle and has a, sp- a sprain and some inflammation there you know they would they would never then spend the next three days testing that by hopping about on that leg you know somehow yes. with singers <laughs> we hear a bit of inflammation you know we, we, we find something that feels a bit strange, and then you know go into a practice room and and sort of throw our voice against the wall for half an hour to just to keep checking whether it's still there um so I think, you know, just an understanding that it's just a part of our body like anything else um, just makes you feel empowered, takes mm. away some of the mystery about it. Um, It's comforting because when you realise that, that it's just, you know, it's just anatomy like everything else, then if something goes wrong, it's fixable. I mean, I, I always make a point of saying to my students, I tell them my story. I show them as part of the introduction. I always show them a production photograph of me singing Fjordaliji looking like 1950s film star Mm. side by side with a picture of my vocal fold pathology, which Mm. always gets their attention. Mm. Um, But the point of me doing that is really to highlight that, you know, two pictures can tell a very, very different story. And and also just that even if you do end up going to, you know, the, the end of the extreme that I ended up going to, I had surgery i rehabilitated i ended up singing better than i was when i was going from contract to contract so even if you know even if there are problems it doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of the road mm. um, i think we have to remove that fear as well it's not just the stigma of the thing that's going wrong in the first place it's the fear that then somehow that's it um and of course you know 95 of the time it, it's not mm.
0: Can you tell us about your surgery and how how you found that and what your rehabilitation journey was like?
1: Yeah, so this happened, so this was 7 years ago now that this happened to me and I think I think we've made a lot of progress since then. Mm-hmm. Um I have to say when I came back to the UK I really didn't know where to reach out to for help. And now reflecting and looking back I realize that that some of that was was my own fear. And again, a a bit in denial, I wasn't really, you know, somehow reaching out to people and actually engaging with the process made it made it real. And there was a part of me that was still hiding a bit. Um, I had a lovely surgeon, uh, a laryngologist down in East Sussex, um, who I was able to see on the NHS. I I paid for the initial appointment privately and then was able to see for the operation on the NHS. I didn't get very much in terms of referral afterwards. I I wasn't I wasn't referred for any speech and language therapy. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really given any indication as to a rehabilitation pathway whatsoever. Um I did a bit of kind of scattershot searching myself. Um but because I didn't really know what I was looking for, it 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 was scattershot, you know, so I didn't I didn't really have a kind of clear pathway that I knew to be what I should follow. So I had a couple of speech and language sessions um, with somebody in London, but could never quite connect what I was doing with her to how that would then carry through into my singing. Mm-hmm. Um didn't find a teacher who I felt really understood the rehabilitation process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just got quite disheartened, really. Um so in the end you know i I did get I did get there, but I would say it probably took me about eighteen months rather than probably a couple of months if I'd had the right help mm, that's mm. really tough that's really tough it's really tough and I think you know i mean genuinely now i I do genuinely think now things are so much better and of mm-hmm. course, I'm now coming from it from the standpoint of I now have a great deal of connections i I am trained to do vocal health triage and to and to signpost people as to exactly where they need to go and who the best the best people are in the business um so obviously i now have an awareness of that but i think even if i wasn't working in this field now i think i think there's just a bit more information out there about who the people are to go to you know and the fact that you can apply to help musicians for instance um or the royal society of of music you know i I wasn't really aware of of any of that at the time, mm. so I had, you know, I had the surgery, and at that time it was quite quite old fashioned advice. Now, because now they recommend that you're only um, on complete voice rest for two days before you start gently vocalizing again. At that time, it was two weeks. Mm. So I had the 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 blood vessels that were supplying the polyp cauterized, and then the polyp itself was was sort of scooped out. So again, I was really lucky because it wasn't actually on the mucosal membrane. It was within the strands of the cords themselves. But the complication for me was because I had been singing with an injury for such a long time, I had developed a lot of compensatory patterns and behaviors to enable me to get closure. Um, So I had a lot of unlearning to do um, because the only way I'd been able to sing was to sort of throw everything but the kitchen sink at it. And of course I had to really come back to basics. And learn again just how little I could do. Mm. Um, but it took a while for my vocal folds to sort of work in sync with one another. There was definitely the one that had been operated on definitely was a little bit sluggish Mm. and reluctant for a while. So it did, it did take time. But it was mostly, I would say, gently putting myself back together once I'd got over the initial fear. And actually I found that safer just being in a room with myself. Mm. Than I had sort of venturing out and spending huge sums of money on you know on people that I wasn't sure were specialists enough to
0: mm-hmm. help me. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about your voice clinic and how it came to be?
1: Yeah, so I um so look, while all of this was happening to me um, I there was a real sort of light bulb moment for me because I just thought, hang on, there is a huge gap here. Um, I knew what I needed and what I didn't have, and that just made me feel really sad. Um, you know, when I thought about any other singer going through a similar thing, so I sort of decided there and then that I wanted to somehow be part of the change, but I didn't know how. Um, I had had some vocal physiotherapy myself, um, as part of my rehabilitation as well, which I found really helpful. Actually, that was that was the part of my re- rehabilitation that I found really helpful. Um because I had been compensating so much so it gave me a sort of new relationship in terms of my own biofeedback um, which when I was trying to then put everything together in a painstaking way um, I found that much easier to do because my own kind of kinesthetic awareness was better so I'd had that experience with vocal physiotherapy and really enjoyed it and was interested so I I trained, first of all, as a sports massage therapist so that I could get my anatomy diploma. Always sort of knowing that I was going to go really niche and and work with voice because that's what I know and love and who I wanted to help. So at the time um, when I first did my vocal massage training, there wasn't even a training pathway in this country. There Mm. is now, thankfully. Um, So at the time I went over to study in Switzerland with someone to learn um, vocal massage techniques. And then came back to this country, and Stephen King, who's the founder of the Voice Care Centre, by this point had started um had put together the sort of first vocal massage training pathway in this country. Um, so I decided to go and do some further work with him and just really loved the way he worked, really loved the whole biopsychosocial, um, you know, the sort of psychology of that and just that way of working. Um, and just being much more gentle and mindful mm-hmm. about the treatments. Um, because, you know, my own experience has taught me that as singers, we our nervous systems are up against it all the time, you know, we're in fight or flight a lot of the time, um, you know, and that's before what we've all collectively been through in the last two or three years. Mm. Um, so Valentine Voice Care um, was founded just before the first lockdown, having gained all of my vocal massage skills. Um, And then during lockdown, obviously, I wasn't allowed to see any clients, wasn't allowed to put my hands on anyone. So um, I found myself unemployed and sort of really threw myself into learning, really just to hit the books and thought, well, I'm going to go mad if I don't do something. So I just really went down the vocal health rabbit hole um, and just started trying to kind of learn as much information and add to my skills as possible. so that then when the pandemic ended, I was able to open my doors again, thankfully. Mm. Um, and this time as Valentine voice care, which is just, it's important to me because it's my name. Mm. Um, and it's so it, it, it encompasses everything that I am, everything that I have been and everything that I now bring to the table, everything that I can do to help and be useful. Um, but it also is a nice broad umbrella. So it means that if I, if I want to add to my skills, um, but but stay related to voice, that can all come under that, that umbrella. So for instance, I've, I've just started um, my first counselling course, which I think is going to be hugely beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, but really just all types of integrated voice therapy um, so that I have as many tools as possible to help my clients get back on their feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and really working in this biopsychosocial way and treating the person that's in front of me, you know, yes, they're a singer, yes, there might be something um, biomedical or they might have some kind of vocal fold pathology going on, but actually it's everything else that they brought with them to the table. It's, you know, it's the experience they had during lockdown, whether or not they felt safe to practice in the digs they were living in, it's Mm -hmm. their relationship with their teacher, it's what's going on at home, their living environment, what medication they're, you know, it's all of that. And so it's a huge privilege that people come to me and trust me to, to help them to unpick all of that, and we just really take our time, um, mm. and try to get as many parts of the jigsaw puzzle as possible, mm. and, so the the sort of initial assessment onboarding part of it is always really very in depth, mm. and I ask a lot of questions, um, to cover, to cover everything that I've just said, um, and then I'm. I do a lot of breath work. I do a lot of sort of helping them with sort of body mapping, body scanning, just so that they can start to increase their own awareness of of their bodies and their instruments, um, as well as the vocal massage and laryngeal manipulation techniques, which physically make everything feel better. Um, But actually I think almost the most important thing about vocal massage is its use as a learning tool. as I said, my own my own experience was such that I I started to really get to know my own body because of the 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 manual therapy that I'd had, and there's just something about someone physically putting their hands on you that just allows you to tap into something in a way that no matter how many different ways it's been articulated to you, sometimes you still just can't quite get it, um, and it, and what that means is then when you go away from the session and go to sing. Um, because everything feels so free and easy, when those slightly unhelpful compensatory patterns come back in, which your brain is only ever doing to protect you. Um, but you know, sometimes they're just what our brain is doing isn't as helpful as it thinks it's being. Mm-hmm. Um when but when that starts to creep in, then we notice it, it's no longer happening so much at a subconscious level. So as a tool to work alongside good solid vocal technique it's invaluable Mm -hmm. um so that's yeah so that's what i do we solve i we solve the human jigsaw puzzle that's sitting in front of me Mm -hmm. and if i feel that they need help that's out with my own scope of practice i have an incredible team of people that i know Mm -hmm. to refer them to you know and sometimes people people will need additional help in terms of psychotherapy or 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 nutrition perhaps um or i often refer them to go and talk to their gp about a particular health condition that they have mm. but it's just it's a very very difficult when you're in the middle of your own perfect storm it's very difficult to see the wood for the trees and sometimes you just need somebody else to sit back and sort of find a path mm-hmm. so that's what i that's what i do I'm the Vocal Pathfinder, <laughs> just giving myself a new title.
0: Yeah, we'll see that on your slogans coming out. <laughs> what was quite surprising to you when you were learning about the manual therapy side? Was there anything that kind of struck
1: you? I think the biggest the biggest thing that struck me actually was this idea that actually you don't have to apply very much pressure at all. Um, you know, I think I always grew up very much with that no pain, no gain yeah. attitude. And that for something to work it had to hurt you had to really be aware of it um and actually that doesn't really make sense because when you consider that all of the sensory receptors in your body are just below the surface of the skin actually all you really need to do is make mindful connection um, and that's enough to open up a conversation with your brain and because it's your brain that's responsible for everything if we can get your brain to feel safe Mm -hmm and draw its attention to those those areas where you're holding then actually that's what enables the change it's not about getting in there with an elbow mm-hmm. and you know <laughs> battering someone into being well it's about holding the space breathing exploring finding finding those things that your brain has been doing to help you and just asking the question, do we still do we still need that protective behavior or can we let that go? And actually, how does it feel if we let that go? Does mm-hmm. it feel easier? Does it feel less effortful? Um, so I think that's been that that's been the biggest thing, because obviously when I first trained, it was as a sports massage therapist. And that's all about getting in there. But mm-hmm. also, you know, with the tissues around the neck and the throat, you, know, you don't want to be using excess force at all. And actually, there's just no need Mm -hmm. you know it's just informed laying of hands um goes a a really long way as long as the client feels safe and is happy to kind of go on that journey with you Mm -hmm. um you can make incredible progress Mm -hmm.
0: And our BAST founder, Lynn Hilton, she's been discussing quite a lot recently about burnout and explaining Mm -hmm. how it can surface as feeling a lack of energy, exhaustion and a mental distance from the job at hand and how they can actually lead on to things like gut problems, reflux, anxiety, all of which we can relate to as singers and many of our performers are going to maybe feel forced to take that extra rehearsal or that gig or whatever it might be for financial reasons especially now that we're living in a cost of living crisis um in your experience as what you're doing now with manual therapy and doing the work that you do with the likes of english national opera what would your advice be to performers about that? And also to the other people in the singers network, like the musical directors and people who might not be so clued up on the voice.
1: So I believe that it's really, really important to educate not just not just the students to give them tools to go through and advocate for themselves and be aware of their bodies. Um, I work primarily with students and with, with singers who are working in the profession. And we can bring awareness to all of these things you know and 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 we can advocate for them sometimes if they need it if they're having a particularly difficult time as part of a rehearsal process
0: mm-hmm.
1: unfortunately a lot of the times even when the singers are sort of feel brave enough to raise their hand and say actually i'm not feeling comfortable actually i think that i might need to mark or i might need to take this time a lot of the time still that's falling on deaf ears and that is incredibly sad uh, it's a product of the fact that we are self-employed it's a freelance part of the freelance culture you know in terms of duty of care the companies don't really need to have much of a duty of care because there are you know there there is a, a surplus of singers mm. um, if one breaks then you know there are another 25 where that singer came from and that that's the difficulty that's what we're up against and particularly when money is tight which it is at the moment for everyone trying to sell this to companies as a priority is a tough sell um but we really need to do everything that we can to get them to look at it from prevention rather than reaction point of view um because actually if they want their singers to perform well they have to feel happy and they have to feel safe mm-hmm. and i think something that would go a long way into helping this situation is if the opera companies um are, are not just opera if, if companies had some kind of vocal consultant um, mm. or vocal health expert on site, um, or at least on standby, so that they could be the first port of call for the singers, company management directors, everybody that had a specific vocal question. Because then, as you mentioned earlier, you know if, if there was somebody like that in the room at these very, very early meetings between designers and directors, perhaps they could say, lovely that's a lovely concept i just wonder whether how easy that's going to be for the singers and whether that we might find that that particular choice might lead to difficulties further down the line is there another way that you know we could keep that aesthetic but in a way that was perhaps a little bit safer for the singers those conversations need to happen right at the start of the process Mm -hmm. um and how do we do that it's really difficult um i think that all we can do is is keep having these conversations, mm. keep encouraging all of our students and our, our singers to have these conversations so that they're so normalized that they feel almost boring. Mm. Um, and, and use every single connection we've got to get to the industry. So, you know, for most of us as teachers, we all have performed at some point ourselves. Mm. So we, we know conductors, we know directors, Um, we have inns in all of these places so it's kind of up to all of us to use those inns Mm. to say I'm noticing a trend of this can we look at that and see if there might be another way around it Um, we just need to keep we just need to keep pushing conversation by conversation Mm. Um, but it is it is very very difficult for the singers because of the way they're paid also Mm. Um, and often they feel that they have to go ahead and and do something you know when they feel vocally perhaps that they shouldn't and i just i know that it's difficult but i would just really really urge all singers listening to this just please don't please if your spidey senses and your gut is telling you that there is something wrong please listen to it mm-hmm. because actually the company and the director and the conductor that you're working with right at this precise moment in time they don't really care about you or your longevity you know sad but true their only priority is what's happening right now and and it's your your priority is your health and your well-being going forward and it's not worth risking something for the short term yeah if it means that it's going to then be something that's going to kind of stay with you or haunt you for the rest of your career
0: Uh, Kate it's been such a pleasure thank you so much for sharing everything thank you
1: thank you very much
0: where can people find out more about you and get in touch
1: they can either email me kate at valentinevoicecare.com or you can also contact me via instagram um which is at valentinevoice um I'm always really always really pleased when people reach out always happy to help um as I say if it's not something that I can help you with myself then I can refer you to somebody who can help. So if you're worried, please don't sit on it. Please do reach out. Thank you so much.
0: If you're enjoying the Singing Teachers Talk podcast, and who are we kidding? Of course you are. Share the love by giving us a... five-star rating and leaving a comment. Just head to the Singing Teachers Talk main page on the Apple Podcast app and scroll to the bottom to click write a review.